Ephesians 5:15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to your husbands in everything to their husbands. Should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not he that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, but as Christ does, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live along in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God for the heart, mm-hmm. from the heart, rendering service from a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. All right. So we find ourselves in the 14th installment of our identity series. We've been doing this for 14 weeks. And uh, tonight we'll be closing out chapter 5 and entering into chapter 6. And as you could see by Andrew's lovely reading... Is a very there's a lot of content. There's a lot to be said as Paul is closing out five and starting six, and he's he's bringing his letter to a culmination or to a close. And tonight's message will be called a love shaped identity, and we're going to be talking about three key points. The first is the reason that we don't like to grow. The second is the reason we need to grow. And the third is what does Christian growth look like? Right? So why we don't like to grow, why we need to grow, and what does this Christian growth look like? Well, first, if we're talking about why we don't like to grow, 
The first thing I think we need to address in our hearts and in our lives is cynicism. I think that is one of the primary things that stands in the way of Christian growth. Cynicism is looking at the world for what's wrong with the world. Cynicism doesn't look and see beauty. Cynicism sees ugliness. It doesn't see hope and joy and progress and faith and love. It sees destruction and chaos and it creates apathy in the person. It sees everything that could go wrong. This is cynicism. Cynicism will be right here in the kitchen at the sink doing the dishes, look over and see that the trash is full and I'll say, why even try? Why even empty the trash? It's just going to get full again anyways. Right? Cynicism says to life, why even try? Because ultimately, it's all going to end poorly. And cynicism, ultimately, if you take cynicism to its logical conclusion, it truly believes that the world ends in death, chaos, and destruction and nothing good. And so when it looks at situations in life, whether it's the trash being full or whether it's uh, an unloving, unforgiving relationship that needs restoration and reconciliation, it will look at those situations and say, well, it's just going to all turn out terrible in the end. So why should I even try? Right? And that gets the heart to a particular place a cynical outview on life and a cynical interpretation of all the events in your life will bring your heart to a crippled place you'll have you'll be suffering and not even know that you're suffering from a crippled heart and what we often do to try to satisfy this crippled heart is we have different responses because inherently we know that the heart is crippled, but we live in a state of denial about it. We deny there even being crippleness in the heart. Deep down, we know that something is not right, that somehow we don't measure up, that somehow something in us, if we stood before our Creator, would not measure up to a holy standard and we would not be thought adequate. And that is a deep fear that I think is rooted in all of humanity. Now, people living in denial of this fact that their heart is crippled will try to address it in a number of ways. One is religion, like just religious practice, right? If I go to church, if I be a good person, if I keep my head down and don't ask too many questions, if I just go with the flow, I'll be holy and acceptable. I'll be right. I will no longer be crippled. If I can act a certain way and polish my appearances by doing 
raising my hands in worship and praying all loud and with big words in a really spiritual vocabulary. If I can do these things, I might be able to fool the people around me into believing that I am holy and acceptable. And just imagine this. What does this look like if there is a bunch of, in their hearts, cynical, and in their hearts, crippled, religious people coming together for worship in the name of Jesus Christ, yet with complete denial that there's anything wrong with not a true worship that is founded in love and repentance and acceptance that there is something that I can't do about my heart condition but instead a bunch of cynical pretending people who walk around saying, oh, it's fine, I'm fine, you're fine, I'm fine, we're cool, you're fine, how are your kids? Fine, right? It happens. And there's just such a lack of authenticity, I think, and a lack of growth. Because when we deny there's something wrong, we can't grow. And we become, I think, embarrassed to even admit that anything is wrong at all. We're like guys who are lost and won't ask for directions. Have you guys been there? I've totally been there. I've been that guy. Uh, You start out knowing exactly where you want to go and you're driving your car and somehow things don't start to make sense. The GPS is telling you to make U-turns where they don't exist and turn right now and there's there's no right turn. And you're, you're just trying to figure it out. And somebody, usually a girl, is in the car and suggests, maybe you could stop and get directions. And you go, no, I know where I'm going. And you keep driving forward. You will not admit that there is anything wrong. You will not admit that you are lost. Because I have an iPhone and I have a brain. And between those two things, we are going to figure a way out of this. I don't care how long it takes. But at all costs, I will not admit that I am lost. And I will not admit that I am in need of directions. Right? Guys are really good at this. And but I feel like that is generally how we are when we come to church. And when we gather with a body of our fellow believers in Christ. A body of people who also say that their identity is in Jesus. But now think about this. If a person driving a car really is lost, how will they ever get to their destination unless they admit that they're lost? unless they admit that there's something wrong, unless they stop denying that they can figure it out themselves and that there needs to be some kind of intervention, right? Now, another way 
I think that we try to pretend that we don't have this crippled heart is an outside-in approach. Now, here's the outside-in approach. The outside-in approach will draw a line in the sand and will say, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Now, I'm going to stand over here because I know that I know that I know that this is right. And if I stand right here, and if I don't move, I can never be in the wrong. And if anybody is over there, I will point my fingers at them and say that if they are what is wrong with the world. In fact, this is, the, this is how the majority of the people uh, in societies that have governments where you can have a say, like democracy, pretty much everybody across the spectrum, religious or not, uh, really uh, right-wing right conservative or left-wing super liberal, everybody does politics this way. They draw the line in the sand and they stand where they're standing and they say, I'm right and everything else is wrong. And if you're over there, then you, you, you are what is wrong with the world. And if only you will change, the world will be right. Can you see that at play in society? That's what we do. Well, now, there was this guy named G.K. Chesterton, and he was a prolific author. He has written some really good books, including Orthodoxy, Heretics. He has written some uh, detective novels called, um, I don't even remember, The Man Who Was Thursday or something like that. And he was a theologian. He was a poet. He was a philosopher. He's very comparable to C.S. Lewis. He was a lot, he was very C.S. Lewis-like. And he wrote a lot of his works in the early 1900s. And uh, at the time, early 1900s, the Times put out a question to some of the greatest writers of the day. And they asked this question of these really great authors, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton was one of the authors selected to answer this question, what is wrong with the world? Because we all think something is wrong with the world, and we want to hear a really smart, brilliant guy articulate it really well, right? Well, G.K. Chesterton wrote back to the Times, and all he said was this, Dear Sir... In regards to what is wrong with the world, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Testerton. They were looking for a profound, theological, philosophical, poetic worldview essay that elaborated on and articulated the intricacies and depths of what is wrong with society and what is the root of all evil. 
And all he said was, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. Now, you could either think he was just being really simple, but if you read his other writings, you know that he's not just being simple at all. The man is brilliant. And so in all his brilliance, he put into words what is wrong with the world. He put it as simply as he could, but no simpler. He said, I am. And that's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, the place where growth starts, the beginnings of maturity is accepting I am what is wrong with the world. It's no longer polishing appearances. It's no longer saying that we're just fine. It's no longer not admitting that we're lost when we're totally lost. And it's no longer pointing a finger at everybody else in the world and saying, you're what's wrong with the world. And if you shape your act up, everything will be fine. See, G.K. Chesterton understood what most religious people don't understand what the Pharisees did not understand. What he understood was that it's not an outside-in approach that will change the world. It's an inside-out approach. The Pharisees, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. What he's saying is you're already dead and you don't even know it. You're like the guy who can't admit that he's lost. And you're whitewashing your tombs. You're painting and making nice and pretty what is already gone, dead, and cannot contribute to life. Now, G.K. Chesterton, with understanding the beginnings of wisdom, said, I am, I am what's wrong with the world. You see, the reason we don't want to change is because of this outside-in approach. The reason we don't want to change is because we first think that everybody else needs to change. Now, let's ask this question. Why do we need to change? Why do we need to change? And that's because the gospel at its core transforms lives from the inside out. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is not whitewashed tombs. The gospel is not saying, I'm fine and I'm not lost. The gospel says this, you are more wicked than you will ever know, yet you are more loved than you could ever imagine. It's totally paradoxical. It's saying that everything in the world is wrong with you, 
Yet God loved you anyways. See, a message like that can pass through facades of religious perfectionism, can pass through the masks that we wear, can pass through the denial of, I'm not lost. A message like that can go right to the heart. And it can change you from the inside out and not the outside in. The gospel will not whitewash a tomb. The gospel will resurrect whatever is inside the tomb. The gospel and cynicism do not go hand in hand because the gospel says that what is wrong is not the trash can and the broken relationship and the way that the world is going to end. The gospel says what's wrong is you. And what's right is Jesus and how much he loves you. Is that crazy? That's something with the power to transform from the inside out. And when people begin to realize that, begin to let the gospel take root on the inside and work itself out, those are people who have admitted and no longer denied They have admitted, I am unwell. I need a doctor. I am not well. But that's not the end of the story. Because a cynic will say, I am not well. Oh man, why even try? Why even try to be anything? Why even try to change my circumstances? Why even try to love and forgive people? Why even try to be in community with people? They're just going to mess it up. They're what's wrong with the world. The gospel gives you permission and freedom to accept, I am unwell, but unwell in a new way unwell in not a cynical way but unwell in a way that gets better unwell in a way that I can be transformed from the inside out unwell in a way that the one man on earth to die for our sins and become resurrected the one man who has triumphed over sin and death can now come in me and make a new identity I no longer have to build, construct these false identities based on religious performance and pointing out everybody else's flaws and polishing my own appearances. I can be totally unwell and totally okay with it. And a people, a group, a community who has wrapped its hearts and its minds around this fact, those kind of people cannot look at the world and say what's wrong with it and not be cynical and not say why try. Those kind of people can change the world. Those kind of people can hear a commission like, you're to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and make gospels and are 
Gospels, disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A community centered around the gospel, admitting its own faults and working together on them, can live out the commission. The commission to take the gospel and make disciples all the way to the outermost parts of the earth. That place on the map where in the olden days when they really weren't good at cartography, they would just write like, we don't know. And the way they said we don't know is there be dragons here. No. Right? <laughs> we can go there because we're not afraid that the dragons are going to not like us or something. We're free on the inside. And now let's, let's ask this question. What does this Christian growth look like? What does it look like? And I think what it looks like is what Andrew just read. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> um, you see, this, this stuff is all fine and dandy if it's just head knowledge, if it's just philosophies, if it's just stuff about life, if it's just something that we could pass a multiple choice test on, if it just stays in the philosophical realm, it won't change the world. Only when those philosophies are taken into our hearts and made realities and work themselves out in the way that we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Unwise says, you're what's wrong with the world. Wise says, I'm what's wrong with the world. Paul shows us three examples of relationships. Two are inside the home, and one is in the workplace. Two inside the home are husbands, wives, and parents and children. The one in the workplace is slaves and masters. Now, in a day when we've outlawed slavery, and it's not really acceptable, at least in our culture, we can't super relate to that, but we can relate to the workplace, right? Um, what the Christian growth looks like is in the context of these relationships that he mentions, it's being Christ in those relationships. So for a wife to be a Christ to her husband, she will submit to her husband's headship in the way that Jesus submitted to the Father, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. For a husband to be Christ to his wife... He will give his life for her and he will love her the way that Christ loved his body, the church. 
loves his body the way that he loves his own body. For a child to be Christ to a parent, it looks like honoring and obeying the way that Christ honored and obeyed his father. It even mentions the commandment to honor your father and mother. The way for a parent to be Christ to their children is for them to be kind. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Meaning, don't be cruel, don't be harsh, don't be abusive. To be Christ means you will seek their best, you will seek their benefit, you will seek their welfare, and you will bring about goodness in their life. For slaves to be Christ to their masters means submission, going along with, honoring the master, even in the face of cruelty. Yet at the same time, for masters to be Christ to their slaves is to not be cruel to them, to not be harsh masters. And now all of these things, we'll tend to look at them and say, yeah, but, and that's the cynic in us, but the cynic will say, yeah, but if I do those things, my crippled heart will never be fulfilled. My crippled heart will never be made whole if I spend all my time giving my life away. What will there be left of me? How will I be whole if I'm constantly giving? If I'm constantly placing somebody else's needs above my own? I'll just fall to the wayside and nobody will care about me anymore. My crippled heart will not be made whole. But ah, it will. That's what Paul tells us. That's what Jesus promises. He says when your identity becomes love-shaped, then you get it. Then you have the beginnings of wisdom. Then you are walking in this life, not as unwise, but as wise. When you get it, like G.K. Chesterton got it, when you say, I'm what's wrong with the world. Therefore, for me to grow looks like no longer denying that, no longer polishing appearances, and no longer just being a religious perfectionist. But instead, accepting there's more wrong with me than I can ever imagine. And even if I think I'm accepting some of my own wrongness, there's probably still more that I don't even see. The beginning of wisdom is repentance. The beginning of growth is repentance. 
why don't we like to grow? Because we're religious and proud whitewashed tombs. Why do we need to grow? Because the gospel changes us from the inside out. If we counter the true gospel and the true living Jesus, we can't not change. We can't not grow. It's not an option. Because when you meet him, you grow. You change. Because he wants to make you just like him. The Father wants to present you to himself holy and perfect and blameless and acceptable. The only way he can do that is by making you just like Jesus. And I think we can safely say that all of us have a long ways to go to be just like Jesus, right? And if we don't say that, if we don't say that, we're fooling ourselves. And if we don't say that, we're being cynics. And we're in denial. We're that guy who says, I'm not lost. I'll figure it out. I've got my iPhone, Google Maps. <laughs> right? But when we take all these things into our understanding of who we are, when we make these a part of our identity, our identity becomes love-shaped. And we can walk into relationships like wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, whether at home or in the workplace. And we could say, I'm not going to draw the line in the sand. I'm not going to stand on my side and say, I'm the only one that's right in the world. And all of y'all are wrong. It says... I will accept my own wickedness first because I have a safe place to do that in Christ. His love is greater than my wickedness. And because of that, I can change. Because of that, I can grow. Because of that, I can mature. Because of that, we can walk as children of light. Because of that, we can walk as not as unwise, but as wise. And a community of believers doing that in the world, no, how matter, no matter how small or how big, those are people that can change the world because they're not just faking it and they're not doing it for their own sake and they're not doing it so people will think highly of them. They're not busy whitewashing their tombs. They're pointing to the glory of Jesus. So I hope we can be that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the gospel, the proclamation that you are king, that nobody has higher authority than you. God, that even though we are wicked, you loved us more. God, help us to make that part of our identity. Help our identity to become love-shaped. Help us to love one another the way that Christ would in our place. And God, help us to grow. Help us to stop denying. Help us to see that we need to grow. And thank you, Jesus, for showing us what Christian growth looks like. In your name, amen.